We covered locally here on WJFF, talking to people that are trying to get refugees out of Iran, uh, trans and LGBTQ uh, uh, refugees. And uh, we're going to hear more today. This is part one of a three-part series. So last Friday of every month, this is what we hear at this time. The voice of LGBTQ plus youth um, giving their perspective on the, uh, the, on, of the events of the day. If uh, you love that WJFF brings the different voices to you in this way, give us a call. 845-482-4141. We're going to outcasting right now. But please, we need your support if we want yeah. to keep these programs here on the air. Christianity for the first centuries of Christianity had same-sex marriages, there wasn't really much discrimination, and it wasn't until the Black Plague came. And when the Black Plague happened in Europe, Christians thought, okay, this is a punishment for our sins, and, and we have to blame somebody. And so the people they blamed were the Jews and the gays. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is a production of media for the public good. A listener-supported independent producer based in New York. Online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Gabe. On this edition of Outcasting, Outcaster Lucas begins a conversation with Bruce Knotts, the director of the Unitarian Universalist United Nations office in New York City. Bruce is a former U.S. diplomat. His areas of expertise include foreign affairs, international LGBTQ work, and climate change. LGBTQ people from elsewhere in the world can face oppressive and even brutal conditions in their home countries. Their best option may be to get out of the country. On this outcasting series, Bruce and Lucas talk about LGBTQ refugees and asylum seekers, the issues they face, and the difficulties they may encounter in trying to find a safe place to live. This is part one of a three-part series. Bruce Knotts, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be here. Could you please tell us a bit about your professional life? What kind of things have you worked on? Well, I was a foreign service officer. I was an American diplomat. I retired in 2007 primarily because I thought President Bush was a bit homophobic. <laughs> and I thought it was better to get out of government. And I wanted to be an, the executive director of an NGO working on international work. And so I am now working with the Unitarian Universalist UN office. And when I got there, there wasn't much discussion of LGBT issues at all at the UN. And I kept bringing it up and bringing it up until finally the UN now is pretty much an LGBT organization. It promotes LGBT rights all over the place. And I'm very proud of the role that I played in making that happen. Wonderful. And quickly, could you just explain what an NGO does or an NGO is? A oh, very good question, yes. NGO is a United Nations acronym for non-governmental organization. I guess Americans would probably call it more of a nonprofit. So it's a nonprofit organization that's working for the betterment of others. And quickly, just the Unitarian Universalists, what are they or who are they? They are actually two different denominations that joined in 1961. Both of them are heretical by most Christians would not consider them to be Orthodox Christians. The Universalists are considered not really Christian because they said universally everybody will be reconciled with God. So there's no eternal damnation in hell. The Unitarians 
believe that there's only one God and Jesus came as as a messenger of God but is not God himself. And so we don't believe in the Trinity, hence the word Unitarian. So we're basically an, a Christian group, but a very progressive and very um, thinking outside the box is, I guess, what I'd like to say. Yeah, because stereotypically, most religious organizations or a lot of religious groups are not as welcoming to the LGBTQ community as they could be. How's this different with the Unitarian Universalists? We've been trying to track this down at least from 1970, if not before. And I've been told examples of even before 1970, Unitarian Universalist churches have been performing same-sex unions in their worship. It wasn't immediately accepted. There were certainly people in the church that felt that it was wrong, that it was sinful. And there was a conscious effort on the part of the church to basically teach our own congregants that whatever your sexual orientation is or your gender identity, there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing that needs to be fixed. But that took long years, even decades, of working with our our congregants to inform them, teach them that it's fine to be whoever you are. And if you're comfortable talking about it, what is your sexuality, just really quickly? I'm gay. <laughs> okay, yeah. So how did you come to work for the Unitarian Universalists? Were you always a member of the Unitarian Universalists, or did their perspective on like LGBTQ society kind of draw you to them? I had a... Um an advisor, and his name was uh, Stephen McDonald, and he was head of the Dignity Group in Washington, D.C., and Dignity is basically the, the LGBT Catholic organization, and he tried to get me to join Dignity, and I said, I've kind of tried the Catholics, and that's not what I want, and he kept bugging me about how I was a spiritual person, and I should go to church, and I should go to a church that affirms me and Isaac, my husband, and finally, I gave him a list of conditions as to what kind of church I would deign to go to. And I don't remember all the conditions, but I remember the first three. And I said, first of all, I don't want to go to a church that has anything to do with hellfire and brimstone. Secondly, I wanted a church that was going to affirm Isaac and I as a gay couple. And my husband is African-American, so I wanted a church that was going to affirm us as a biracial gay couple. And Stephen, without missing a beat, he said, All Souls Church, 16th and Harvard, Washington, D.C., which is the Unitarian Universalist Church there. So I went home to Isaac, and I said, Okay, we're going to go to church on Sunday. He said, Oh, no, you're not. And we're not, you're not getting me in any church. I've been scarred by the church. And so we fought for the entire week. I said, I don't want to go by myself. I want you to go with me. And he said, I don't want to go. You can't make me go to church. And so finally, I like, pulled him out of the bed, put him in the car, you know, drove up to church, pushed him in, into the pew. He sat down <laughs> in the pew. He's got his arms crossed, all this passive-aggressive, you know, just really not happy being in the church. And then we look at the minister. And the minister was gay. He's married. He's got a child. The associate yeah. minister was African-American and a lesbian. And she had a partner, and they had a child. And the social justice minister was also a lesbian with a partner, same-sex partner, and a child. So the entire senior ministerial staff of this church of with over 2,000 members, which is predominantly straight, were LGBT. 
Wow. And so within 20 minutes, Isaac looks at me, gives me a big smile, thumbs up. He says, we're in the right place. This is, this is great. You know, so within 20 minutes, he was like converted. And very quickly after that, we took the new members class and we joined. Wow, wonderful. And how did the Unitarian Universalists get involved with the UN then, slowly working our way to your job there? So they've actually been involved with the UN since the 1960s, about 1960. Adlai Stevenson, who was John F. Kennedy's ambassador to the UN, was a Unitarian. And he said, we should have an office at the UN and we should be involved with the UN. And I came home one day and I said to Isaac, I said, there's a job here for the executive director of the Unitarian Universalist United Nations office in New York City. The only part of that that he heard was New York City. And he said, Bruce, yes, you have to apply. I don't care what the job is, but it's in New York City. You have to apply. I said, okay, okay, I'll apply. So I applied and I got the job. So wonderful. So what is your current job, just like in broad terms? So I, I am the director, and because I have a diplomatic background, I seem to have kind of floated to the top of the nonprofit or the NGO community at the United Nations. So I co-chair the NGO Committee on Human Rights. I chair the NGO Committee on Disarmament, Peace, and Security. I chair the NGO DPI Executive Committee, which represents 1,400 NGOs at the UN. So all that is to say is that I've become an NGO leader, and people look up to me. And it really started with the LGBT work, which I did right at the beginning. And people were so surprised that I was able to get LGBT rights onto the agenda in the UN when, when they really weren't talking about it before. And when I sort of succeeded in, in doing that, then they said, what could you do about women's rights? And what could mm -hmm. you do about climate change? And here's some other things. How about indigenous <laughs> people's rights? Here's a whole plate of things for you to do. Yeah. So I've gotten involved in a lot of things because people think I have this magic wand that I can do stuff. The fact of the matter is that I was the right person in the right place at the right time. And the UN was ready for this. And they just needed somebody to do a little pushing, which is what I did. Because there really wasn't really any resistance at all. Nobody said, oh, don't talk about that. They were receptive to the idea. They just hadn't done it. And they needed somebody to just kind of push them a little in the direction that I think they were ready to go. Wonderful. Okay, so just quickly looking back at your career a little bit. So before you worked at the UN, you were a diplomat for the United States. While working for the United States, did you feel like being gay affected your career in any way? Yes, <laughs> the State Department, I joined the State Department in 1984, and I did not tell them that I was gay. And had I told them I was gay in 1984, I would not have been admitted into the State Department. They found out I was gay like five years later. And by that time, there had been a federal court decision that said you can't fire somebody just because of their sexual orientation. If they've done something else or if they've divulged secrets or something like that, you can fire them. But just their sexual orientation is not sufficient grounds to fire somebody. So they couldn't. When they found out, they, and they wanted to, they really did want to fire me, but they couldn't. And so I got to stay in and I served for 25 years in the Foreign Service. I had some bosses that were very supportive and very welcoming with the whole idea, 
Uh, the State Department actually did a survey at one point, and they asked Foreign Service officers, do you think we're doing too much for the LGBT community or, or not enough or just about right? And it turned out to be a perfect bell curve. So about 20% felt that we weren't doing enough for LGBT people. About 60% believed that we were doing just right what we were doing, which wasn't much at the time, actually. Mm -hmm. And then the, another 20% said, you're already doing too much for the LGBT community. And that was my experience. About 20% of the bosses that I had or the people that I worked with were jerks, you know, and just didn't accept my sexuality at all and didn't like it. 20% were very supportive and really did everything they could to help me. And the rest of them kind of didn't care. They weren't particularly supportive and they weren't particularly hostile either. I remember there's Ambassador Al Easton, who was one of the ones that didn't like that I was gay. And I handed him a copy of John Boswell's book on Christianity and social attitudes and Christianity, which basically demonstrates that Christianity for the first centuries of Christianity had same-sex marriages, there wasn't really much discrimination, and it wasn't until the Black Plague came. And when the Black Plague happened in Europe, Christians thought, okay, this is a punishment for our sins, and, and we have to blame somebody. And so the people they blamed were the Jews and the gays. So there was a lot of persecution for of, on Jewish people and also LGBT people. And that's where that persecution really started. So I handed him this book and he said, you know, just handing me this book is a provocative act. And hmm. I said, how is handing you a book a provocative act? And he says, well, you're giving me homosexual propaganda. <laughs> and I actually, I, I filed a, a EEO complaint at the State Department, which was settled on terms favorable to me. Uh -huh. And I think I was the first one ever to do that. Well, we're sure glad you did. And <laughs> after leaving the State Department, you worked in various things, and eventually you worked in Taiwan. Can you elaborate on your work for marriage equality in Taiwan, I guess? In my present capacity, working at the UN, I've been invited to speak in Taiwan for an organization called the World League of Freedom and Democracy. And I've always gone there with my husband. I always introduce my husband to the audience, and, and we've met the president of Taiwan and the vice president of Taiwan and the foreign minister. Taiwan is a freedom-loving country, and it should give freedom to its LGBT people. I've talked individually to members of the legislature, and I've talked to the one church that is the most hostile, which is the Presbyterian Church. Oh. And I've reminded the Presbyterians in Taiwan that the Presbyterians in the USA have already voted in favor of same-sex marriage and the ordination of LGBT clergy. And their answer is, well, the American Presbyterians have talked about this for 40 years, and we, have, we need to talk about it some more. And I told them, I said, talk about it for as long as you want. Just stay out of the political process. And of course, they didn't listen to me. Sadly, yes. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. On this edition, Outcaster Lucas is talking with Bruce Knotts, the director of the Unitarian Universalist UN office in New York City, about LGBTQ refugees and asylum seekers who must leave their home countries to escape oppression and seek a safe place to live elsewhere. So the struggle for social equality in Taiwan continues today. 
How do you see the difference between legality and social acceptance in Taiwan and in many countries that you work in? They are two very different things. Chinese society generally, and this includes mainland China and Taiwan, and they're both you know have very strong Chinese cultures. Particularly in mainland China, most of them are not religious, so they're not really worried about Christianity or any of those things. But they have Confucian ideas of what family should be. And I've talked to so many Chinese gay guys, and they are out to everybody except their parents. And that's also true in Taiwan. I mean, I think a lot of Taiwanese are very happy for somebody else to be gay or somebody else's kids to be gay, just not their kids. Mm -hmm. And religiously, I mean, I I belong to the Buddhist Tsuchi Foundation. I'm a commissioner, and it's based in Taiwan. Master Chen Yan has been the Dharma master for this Buddhist order for over 50 years. And she asked me, she said, please don't say that I'm in favor of LGBT same-sex marriage. I said, okay, because she said, I don't want to get involved in politics. I I don't want to do that. I said, okay, but can I say that you have been gracious and kind and welcoming to both me and my husband? And she says, yes, you can say that. And I have said it. And I always say actions speak louder than words. And the Buddhists in Korea and in Taiwan and in mainland China, I have found not to be particularly helpful to the LGBT movement, but not hostile either. They're just Mm -hmm. basically kind of quiet. The two religions that seem to really want to go after LGBT people are the Christians and the Muslims. Taiwan doesn't have many Muslims, but it does have a very small but very rich and powerful Christian population. And these Presbyterians, as I mentioned, are very vocal in their opposition to same-sex marriage. They feel it violates their Christian beliefs, and they've been causing a lot of trouble. So while you were in Taiwan fighting for this marriage equality, you were there on the behalf of the UN. What sort of support did you get on, if I can say, like your mission in this case? So I, I'm, I'm actually there on behalf of the Unitarian oh. Universalists. Taiwan calls me a senior UN diplomat. Mainland China calls me a senior UN diplomat. And I'm not. I'm a senior NGO leader. I work for a nonprofit. I represent the Unitarian Universalists. But people think I'm a senior UN diplomat, and they treat me as such, which is great, even though I am very careful to tell everybody that's not who I am. But they do listen to me. And I, as I said, I've met the president. I've met the vice president. I've met the foreign minister. I meet very powerful people there. And I tell them, I said, if you want to be seen as a liberal, freedom-loving country, it's time for you to give your people marriage equality. Taiwan, of course, has a very difficult relationship with mainland China. Mm-hmm. Mainland China would just like to gobble it up and take it over. And I said, the one thing you have that China doesn't have is freedom and democracy. And as long as you kind of hold that up and, and support freedom and democracy for everybody, including the LGBT people on your island, then you will have freedom-loving people supporting you, like the United States, I'm hoping. Mm-hmm. 
But if they start persecuting or not treating their LGBT people properly, they're going to lose some of that support from freedom-loving people, from the Europeans, from the United States, from other countries that do support marriage equality. So that's been my argument with them. And they do listen to me and they understand it. Uh, but they're struggling with it because there are significant members of the population that don't like it. There's probably many more people that don't care about it, don't really want to engage on the issue, and very few people that are really advocating very strongly in favor of same-sex marriage. Uh -huh. So as a member of an NGO in the UN, what power do you have, I guess? Mostly just my mouth. <laughs> you know, People know that I speak for a lot of NGOs, not just my own. And they also know that on this issue, on LGBT issues, I speak right along with the UN. I mean, the Secretary General of the UN has talked about marriage equality. The High Commissioner for Human Rights has talked about um, equality of relationships and, and LGBT rights. So everything I'm saying is absolutely in line with UN policy. Now, it wasn't when I got there in 2008, mm -hmm. but because of some of the work that I've done and other people, you know, it is policy now. So could you please elaborate on your work that helped bring LGBTQ issues and rights to the main table at the UN? So when I first got into the UN in 2008, January 1st, 2008, and I talked to my interns, I said, okay, what should I be doing now? And they said, they're organizing a human rights conference in Paris, and you should be part of the planning committee. So I go in there and I start, we had weekly meetings planning for this conference. And they talked about the human rights of everybody you could think of. The Roma in Europe, the Dalits in India, everybody everywhere except one group, my group, the LGBT group. And I was furious, but it was like my first day at the UN, so I didn't want to say anything and <laughs> cause trouble on my first day. So I didn't. And then the second week I went again and I was furious again. I was mad as all get out. Yeah. <laughs> but I still didn't say anything because I was still new. But then the third week my hand went up and I said, okay, what about LGBT people? And I said, okay, we'll take that under advisement. And then every week thereafter my hand went up. I said, what about LGBT people? What about LGBT people? And then people started coming to me and said, you know, you're right. We really should include LGBT people. Yeah, we for really should. <laughs> yeah. And the conference chair, Shamina de Gonzaga, she's from Argentina, the youngest conference chair the conference had ever had. And for the first time in a 60-year history of these conferences, LGBT rights were discussed. I had the first ever workshop. I was included in a roundtable discussion uh, where I talked about LGBT rights. And there was a guy there from the Vatican. He was a monsignor. And after I spoke... And the session broke up. He kind of cornered me, put me in a corner, and he just he said, I want to tell you, I'm gay and I support everything you're doing. And I go, you're a Monsignor right from the Vatican. <laughs> he said, yes, and I support everything you're doing, so keep it up. That's wonderful. So, yeah, I was really surprised. So from there on out, the rights of LGBTQ people really became more of a talking point with the UN and – Right. So the government of France, which was a co-sponsor of the, of the conference in Paris, said that they would introduce a resolution at the UN General Assembly that called on the world to abolish discrimination and violence based on sexual orientation and gender identity. So when we came back to New York, we started lobbying all of the European missions, 
we camped out a lot at the Norwegian mission because they were very helpful and, and really helped us connect with everybody else. And on December 18th, 2008, there was a draft resolution. We decided it would be best if the resolution was not presented by France. We wanted it from a country in the global south. So Argentina stepped up. And so the Argentines said, okay, we, we want this resolution calling for the world to end discrimination and violence based on sexual orientation, gender identity. And 66 countries signed that resolution. All the countries of the European Union Sunil Pant was representing Nepal. He's the first openly gay member of the Parliament of Nepal representing the Communist Party. Oh, wow. And he was wearing a big button on his chest that said Kami Fag on it <laughs> because he was representing the Communist Party. Yeah. So he was very proud of his button. <laughs> the United States didn't support it at the uh -huh. time. It was still the Bush administration, but every other country in the Western Hemisphere just about it was the United States and Cuba that didn't support it, but all the Latin American countries, Canada, of course, supported it. And eventually, when Barack Obama was elected, he supported it, and we got some more countries. So more and more countries started to, to get this idea that, yes, we need to end discrimination and violence. And does the U.S. still currently support the resolution? It does. It hasn't really been asked its position the Trump administration is kind of interesting. It has been really bad on trans issues. It has uh -huh. really hammered very badly on trans people. It hasn't really talked about sexual orientation. And I don't know why that is, but a lot of the, like the State Department's programs for international exchanges for LGBT ministers even, because I've actually talked to some African ministers who are gay and they, they come to the United States and they talk about LGBT situations in Africa. Those programs seem to be going on, even in the Trump administration. But support for trans people is totally absent. In fact, they're being persecuted. So you would say trans people are being persecuted under the, trans oh, uh, the Trump administration? Oh, yes. And at the UN, there is no support for LGBT rights from the U.S. mission to the UN. And we used to count on them for support, and there's no support there. There's no particular hostility towards people of different sexual orientations, unlike gender identity. There's a lot of mm -hmm. hostility there, but there's no support either. So again, we have to go to the Norwegians and the British and the Swiss and the Argentinians and the South Africans. I mean, we have our whole list of countries that support LGBT rights, but the U.S. isn't really one of them right now. That's definitely a shame right now. When I saw a lot of your work, it always said, like, instead of LGBTQ, you often use, or like on the workshops and stuff, it used SOGI. Yes. Um, why is that? As we're already talking here, when we're talking about NGO instead of nonprofit, the UN has its own language, and it prefers SOGI, sexual orientation, gender identity. And a lot of countries don't want they, – they say the words gay and lesbian in particular are Eurocentric. They're not African. They're not really Asian. And they don't like them. And so SOGI tends to be a term that's used much more at the United Nations, which stands for sexual orientation, gender identity. Is there a reason this hasn't been adopted in the U.S. as well or other European countries, I guess, then? It's internationally, it's being adopted more and more, even in some European contexts. 
you know, the United States doesn't adopt things very easily anyway, so I don't hear it much in this country. I hear it somewhat when I go to conferences in Europe. It is considered a non-Eurocentric term because gay and lesbian are definitely terms that don't really make sense in Africa or Asia or other parts of the world. They're culturally and historically terms that, that make sense to Europeans and Americans. We're out of time on this edition, but we'll continue this conversation next time on Outcasting. Bruce Knotts, thanks so much for joining us. Looking forward to it. This has been part one of a three-part series. That's it for this edition of Outcasting, public radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, including youth participants Dhruv, Alex, Amelie, Andrew, Dante, and Lucas. I'm Gabe. Our executive producer is Mark Sophus. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported independent producer based in New York. More information about Outcasting is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting episodes, and the podcast link. Outcasting is also on social media. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. Seriously, don't be scared. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Again, the number is 866-488-7386. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting, LGBTQ Resources. I'm Gabe. Thanks for listening. And this is WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. You've been listening to Outcasting on your community radio station, a monthly program brought to you by LGBTQ plus youth, um, part of our a new lineup on Friday afternoons just before the news. 845-482-4141 is the number that you need to call if you support uh, great news and information that you get here on WJFF. A variety you're just not going to find 